is, I'm going to, here in a moment, I'm going to read this text. So, this summer, we've been studying through Colossians. Um, Ryan will explain further how Colossians and Philemon fit together. We think, we believe they were sent together. Um, but, uh, obviously, Philemon is a pretty short book, just one chapter, 25 verses. So, we're going to tackle it today in this class. Um, this, this summer, we've been, we've been trying to teach and, and, and model um, a, uh, the, the spiritual process of interpreting the Bible. How do we discern the Spirit? How do we understand what God's saying to us? And how do we allow time for Him to do that? And so we've been, we've been taking some time throughout this, this series to just kind of pause and reflect on what's been taught. And then we're also focusing on how do we teach uh, in such a way that that honors the hermeneutical process, which is this process of interpretation. How do, we, how do we seek to understand the author's intended meaning? How do we, what principles do we need to know? What, what steps do we take to, to make sure that we, um, we are seeking to know what God wants us to know through the text, and specifically why the author wrote it and, and what he's writing and what they're writing about. So, um, so that's kind of been our somewhat of our two-prong appro- approach to studying Colossians and then now Philemon. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text. I'm going to read it somewhat slowly and deliberately. Um, I want you to observe a couple things. I'm actually going to read through it twice. It's going to take a, a little bit. I'm going to read through it once, give you about a minute or so, and I'm going to read through it again. Uh, there's a couple questions on the back here that have just uh, things to look for. What from this letter helps explain the nature of the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon? And then, uh, what is Paul asking Philemon to do, and why is he asking him to do it? So, you can be looking for those things, and then after I read it the second time, and after you take a minute to reflect, you're going to talk about those two questions at your tables for about seven or eight minutes. Okay? So, you'll, you'll kind of be called on to to share what, you, what you've observed. So, the, the purpose of this is to, one is to hear the letter read out loud, because it would have been read out loud when it was delivered, um, but also to kind of catch the flow of it, and for you to think and, and discover what's going on, and then Ryan will get up after you guys talk, talk through that stuff. Ryan will get up and teach through uh, what's happening. So, let me read. Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Anapphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, 
whose father I, I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me and to, to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owning me, your owing me even your very self, your own very self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So take a minute and just reflect on what's been said and uh, look for those two things. in case somebody walks in. Okay, let me read it again. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, in the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love for all your love and of, all the, and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because, of the, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, 
whose father I become in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me your, your, own, your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, our fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right, take another minute to kind of notice what's, what's there, what's jumping out at you. Okay, so at your tables, um, you have about eight minutes or so until it starts. It strikes twelve or ten or whatever. Um, so just talk through this first couple questions and anything else that jumped out of you. Ready? Go. Okay, let's um, let's let's knock out this letter. Um, like Scott said, this is a letter that was. Um, in terms of introductory issues, we're not going to go into it all, although um, we talked at our table a little bit about some tension this might have with the book of Colossians in terms of where they, or where they originated. Um, we, we, we believe that the most likely case for where Paul is in prison writing Colossians is Rome. The complicated thing is that there are a lot of details in this letter, which we know is sent alongside the letter to the Colossians that probably leads me to say that Paul wrote this in prison in Ephesus. Um, the good news is that what, whichever one it is, it doesn't affect the meaning of the letter. It's, it's interesting. It helps us date it. We could probably start to move Colossians earlier if it was written in, uh, in Ephesus along with Philemon. What, whichever one, written in Rome, written in Ephesus, Colossians and Philemon are written together. They are carried together and they are delivered to the church in Colossae 
together, and, and one is delivered specifically to a man named Philemon. So that's, if you want to hear all the other introductory stuff, go listen to our first lesson on Colossians. It'll pretty much be the same. Um, which brings us into this text. This, um, this letter is one of the ones that we'll most quickly ignore in terms of the Pauline corpus, in terms of all that Paul wrote. This is the one that will push aside the quickest. This is also the one that just has this incredible picture of the gospel and what it means for three different men in totally different situations. A man of some means who happens to own a slave, and we talked about slavery a couple of weeks ago, that this is not 19th century American slavery based on race and forced servitude. This is likely a slave that had a debt, he, or a man that had a debt he could not pay, and he sold himself into slavery to cover his debts. And so Philemon takes them up, and it's more along the lines of indentured servitude. This is a hired servant. And he has an X amount of time until he's worked off his debt, and then he has the option to become a free man. We see in this story that before that happens, he runs away, and he comes to an apostle. So we have a, slave, a runaway slave, a wronged owner of that slave, and an apostle. And you're going to see how the gospel um, takes what seems to be a very staggered playing field and levels it really quickly. And then Paul, without making any demands, can force a man's hand to do the right thing. And, one, and this is, again, this is a letter where uh, many commentators will call it one of the most masterful examples of winsome Christian rhetoric that makes no demands, but just throws the oughts and the musts and the shoulds and in the air and says, uh, you'll make the right decision. You'll make the right decision. And so that brings us to, I want to talk about, there are three requests that Paul makes, and talk a little bit about why he, he, what he's asking for, and rank those requests, because some of them are more important than others. And it might offend uh, some of our modern sensibilities, we were talking about this earlier this morning, that as 21st century Westerners, um, we have, a, we have a tendency to focus on things that the Bible really doesn't care about. We have a tendency to be offended at things that the Bible just says is. And this letter, in terms of what Paul cares about most, is going to offend us a little bit. Because to, to tip the hand right away, Paul's number one concern is not that this slave be set free. He makes that request, but not before something else takes place. That is not what Paul's primary concern is. And so let's walk through his three concerns, and then we'll talk about how he justifies this and how he masterfully orchestrates um, this letter. And I think he orchestrates the encounter between Onesimus and Philemon such that Onesimus will do the right thing, Philemon will do the right thing, and all of this stuff will work out. So jumping on down into um, verse 8, we'll see his, Paul start to build in his first appeal. Request number one, so verse 8, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Paul says, not only do I have the authority as an apostle to do something, I, have, I, I so believe in the cause of Christ that I could demand you do something. He says, I won't do that. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for, Jesus, or for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, Notice he never calls this man a slave. He never puts him, he, he never talks about him in that way. Just like he ends the letter to the Colossians. 
He never describes him as a slave. He's always a brother, a fellow worker, the faithful one. He says, um, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Then the parenthetical remark, formerly he was useless to you. That's technically what Onesimus means. His name is translated, the useless one. Um, if you owned someone, it was common for you to name them based on some glaring characteristics or traits about them. You could name them the strong one, the smart one. This one he named the useless one. And watch how Paul starts to redeem this. Though he, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Watch Paul start to pull him up. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Now, this is a dangerous thing for Paul to do were he not absolutely sure that he could win this argument, so to speak. What rights does a master have over his slave especially a runaway slave, when returned. I mean, legally, he could kill him as punishment. At the very minimum, he will make his life miserable, whip him. Do a, this is where like, your pictures of 19th century um, American slavery really do make a lot more sense in terms of his rights over a man that he owns financially. And you've wronged me, you've run away, you've broken your contract with me, and, I, and you'll receive the punishment. So Paul says, I'm sending him back to you. Sending my very heart. There Paul already starts. When you evaluate how you're going to treat this man when you see him, this is the heart of the apostle Paul. He already starts to sway the conversation. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Paul says, I would have loved to have him with me as your ambassador. Could you imagine a slave owner hearing that about their slave? That an ambassador in the ancient world is someone's equal, a fair representative of someone else. I would love to have him on your behalf, working with me during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul says, I could, I could do these things, but I want your permission to do so. This is his first request. I want Onesimus back. He has been an asset to my ministry. He has been a value to me as I've been in prison. He says, I'm going to let you make that decision. I'm sending you my heart. I'm sending you my child in the faith. I'm sending you a brother, a fellow worker. Don't know how you're going to treat him, but I want him back. This is Paul's first request. And then here's the, the, the kind of bizarre verse 15, which I think we can have some answers for. He says, for this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Now before we read the, the end of that sentence, um, it's important to note, um, what does he mean by have him back forever? I think Paul is appealing to a biblical imagination, to someone who is well-versed with the Scriptures. This is Paul appealing to the laws in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Um, the specific reference, I think it's Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15. I'll look it up in a second. Um, there is a law regarding slaves in, in the Israelite community that says... If you are to enslave a fellow, a fellow Israelite, so this is not a foreigner, this is a brother, this is someone who is in the bloodlines. If they need to become your slave, you get them for six years. And then on the seventh year, you set them free. 
This is kind of how Jewish society worked. And Paul, I think, is mentioning this to not only put him um, as someone who has the option to go free or should be set free at one point, but saying he's in the bloodlines. This is your brother. This is your family. But then he says um, he, he, he might come back to him or that he, you might have him back forever because there's a provision in that law. It says on year seven, you have to set them free. But if you're good to them, if they like working for you, if they love your family, if they, are, if they want to be your slave forever, they can make that choice. So Paul says, um, perhaps this is working out such that Onesimus will just become your slave forever. Which puts us in a weird position, because wait, I thought he wanted to give Onesimus dignity. I thought, and we'll see in verse 21, that he wants to set him free. Is Paul going against his own logic here, saying, possibly you could have this man as a slave for the rest of his life? I think what Paul is doing is he's orchestrating the encounter so that Onesimus doesn't come in real brash and say, the Apostle Paul says, you got to let me free. I think he wants Onesimus to at least know that there's the option that you will be a slave forever. I think he wants Onesimus to return with a true repentant heart. I think he wants him to come back um, okay with the fact that he might serve this man forever. This is where Paul gets bizarre. Because we hate that. We, you must demand freedom at all costs. And Paul says, no, there's at least an option that you will be this man's slave forever. Um, he wants Onesimus to walk in and say, treat me as one of your servants. Which reminds us of the prodigal son. Oh, that I were treated as good as one of your servants. He wants Onesimus to return as the repentant, broken prodigal who has wronged someone in a position of authority over him. And I think because Paul is using the biblical images, he's weaving them together, he wants Philemon to play the part of the gracious, merciful, loving father. Go read Luke 15. I think Paul is orchestrating the encounter so that it goes like this. You go broken and repentant, and I will lean on Philemon to be kind and godly and merciful. That's, this, that's his first request, and look at how he finishes out verse, uh, the request in 15. He has parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever, but here's how he changes it. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is sweeping away any semblance of uh, stratification between social class or status. He's saying in flesh and in the Lord, this is now a brother. You'll treat him as such. But if you go back to verse 14, I'm waiting for your consent to do that. If anything, this is a letter of like master manipulation, getting someone to do, some, do the right thing with very, very well-crafted rhetoric. He called it loving coercion. Loving coercion. Loving coercion. Well, Scott was talking about that. Explain what you were saying you, you picked up in the letter in terms of um, how it's, it's leading someone to making the right decision. Yeah, it's, it's like this. You know, if you think about you as a, as a parent or... You know, another friend, and, and you have a strong conviction about the right things, and, and you 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 feel there's you're not 
seeking this because of any self-benefit, but you purely want what's what's right and what's what's best for all involved. And to have that kind of conviction, you, Paul really shows uh, what it's like to, to lead someone to make the right decision. You know, like he's not he's he's not offering he's not offering a way out, but he's not making him do it either. Yeah. He's saying this is the right thing, and I trust that you'll do it. And, and I mean, so so it's an encouragement to me that you know when, those times when I when I do feel that conviction, I, I can use persuasive yeah. language to get somebody to do the right thing. Yeah. It's it's one of the, Rachel and I talk about this a lot with our three year old. Um, I want him to make the choice to obey, but I don't give him a choice to not obey. So obedience is his like it's it's of his own prerogative. But the only option not on the table is disobedience. So your move. That's kind of that's kind of how it works, and I think that's what Paul is kind of doing. You know, and there will be, and granted, you can't go too far. He's talking man to man, not father to child. But there is something to letting someone, and this is where, I, I, from a parent's perspective, I've learned that I can make him do anything and strip away all of his dignity. Or I can force his hand and let him do something with dignity. So, like, I can shove a steak in his mouth or whatever he's refusing to eat. He wouldn't refuse to eat steak. But, um, or I could just say, well, you're going to sit there until you eat it. It's going to be your choice. There's no other option, but you're going to do so with dignity. And, and I think that's, that's, in some sense, that's what Paul's... Paul, the last thing he would do is strip away a man's dignity for the sake of another man. No, he's, in this, he's, he's elevating everyone. He's not, even, he's not even trying to lower Philemon. He's elevating Onesimus. Um, I love this letter. So, request number one is um, return him to me. Paul wants him back. Return Onesimus. Let's look at the second request. Verse 17. He says, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. That's, that's request number two. Accept Onesimus as you would accept Paul. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And here's Paul, master class again. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Well, again, it's not, I don't even think it's manipulation as much as building the case for you will do the right thing. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Um, the, the main, this is, I think, his primary request. Reconciliation between brothers in Christ. Because one thing that Paul could do is he could demand freedom. He could demand, he could even say, I'll pay all of his debts. I'll find someone to pay all of his debts if I can't. And you will set him free. But that doesn't, that runs the risk of the relationship remaining strained between Philemon and Onesimus. Paul's primary concern is reconciliation. Reconciliation. Unity in the body of Christ is his number one concern. And he says, whatever he has, whatever he owes you, I'll pay it. 
But don't forget, you owe me your entire life. <laughs> and I want some benefit from you in the Lord. He said, I'm cashing in. That's what Paul's saying. So don't forget the debt you owe to me. And now it's time to pay up. Reconcile with this man. And then he gets into the third request, verse 21. Confidence in your obedience. He leaves Philemon no room to do otherwise. Confident in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And almost across the board, this is um, agreed that he is saying, and the cherry on top of your reconciliation with him will be his freedom. Will be to wipe out his debts. Then he has some closing remarks. So, request number three. Free Onesimus. One and three are all contingent on this happening. Paul wants this to happen more than anything else. Reconciliation between brothers. Um, Paul relies heavily on the biblical imagination, as I've already said. And I think that he is, he is building the case, sending a repentant man into a hostile situation, diffusing it, um, saying, I do want this man back because he's so valuable to me, and reconcile with him, treat him as a brother. Therefore, if you get around to it, set him free. <laughs> Paul, and whenever you have like the, the references, the allusions to Exodus and Deuteronomy, to gigantic narratives about slavery, about God's people being in slavery, and God's kindness to them to set them free. And the, the allusion to, if he has a debt, I'll pay it, charge it to my account. That's a, that is like a very beautiful picture, drawing our eyes back to the cross and to Paul's instructions in other letters. I think he's just saying that... Um, Remember how you've been set free from something, Onesimus? Why do you owe me your life? In some sense, you owe your, your connection to the body of Christ to me, whether that is through Epaphras or what have you. But it's this idea of forgive as you've been forgiven, set free as you've been set free. He draws all in. So if we go back to how does he justify these three requests? Um, he is insisting that Philemon live out a biblical mindset, a mind that's being constantly transformed by the Holy Spirit, which thus transforms relationships between people. So, I think that all of this is justified by what he prays for in verse 6. Um, I'll start in 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. That right there is a loaded section about the value of this man being returned as a repentant slave and how he ought to be treated. He says, I've heard of how much you love people and your strong faith. And what that means for your, um, your, the, the, the connection you have to both the Lord and to the saints, of which, um, to which Onesimus belongs. Verse 6, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. 
for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, this is a loaded, loaded verse, so let's walk through it. Um, the word sharing, and immediately to our minds, I think it comes to like the sharing of the gospel, like an evangelistic type thing. But it's more in line with the idea of a partnership, a union in a common faith. I pray that the, the partnership of your faith with the rest of the brothers... Um, it should produce something, because he says it may become effective. So it's got to produce something. Jump to the end of the verse. This, whatever it produces, needs to happen for the sake of Christ. Which is frustrating um, how this is translated in the ESV. I didn't spend a lot of time looking at the other translations of these particular words. But... The preposition that's being translated for the sake of is um, ice, which better or more plainly rendered would be in, into, through, by, because of. So he says, I want you to have, I want you to recognize your partnership in the faith needs to be effective into the Messiah, because this is. If I had my way, and no one has yet asked me to be part of a Bible translation committee for good reasons, but I would get rid of almost every word Christ and put Messiah back in because I think that it helps us understand a little more of what he's saying. He is drawing Philemon into the biblical narrative and saying everything that the people of God have hoped for, have looked for, have waited for, and has now come true is in the Messiah. So, I want this new fellowship that you have with everyone to produce something based on the connection to this Messiah, the one in whom all the promises of God come true. He wants um, what's produced to be the full knowledge of every good thing. So, if that takes place in the Messiah, let's look at Philippians 1. This is a parallel verse, different context, parallel verse, Philippians 1.6. This is what Paul prays for. So he's describing what he's thanking God for in the Philippian church. He says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Messiah. I'm just going to start doing it myself. Jesus Messiah. So there is something that he trusts God to do through his Messiah in the Philippian church. Some good work, which just reads so much like that he wants, this, uh, he wants in Philemon's life the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Messiah. Um, the good work in Philippians and every good thing in Philemon um, is just a general way of describing the transformation that comes about by the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul is grabbing onto before he makes these three requests. I trust that as a member of the brotherhood, um, as one through whom the Holy Spirit will be effective because of his promises that he's made to work out through the Messiah, that he will transform you. He will transform your heart and your mind such that in Christ, again, another reference, let's go to, you don't have to go there, I'll just read it, 2 Corinthians 
1.20. He says this, um, All the promises of God find their yes in Him, that being Jesus. And that is why through Him we utter our Amen to God for His glory. Paul is trusting that there's something powerful there that um, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus obliterates all um, ways of dividing people. It is the great unifier, which goes us, takes us to our final text. That I, actually, second to last text I want to jump to, Galatians 3.28. Probably one of the most important texts to understand Philemon. Paul says, going on and on and on about how beautiful the work of Christ is as he fulfills the plan of God, as he fulfills the, and, remo- and removes the, the shackles that people will wrongly place on some um, using the law to do it. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. Paul insists that there is a fellowship available in Jesus that gets rid of distinctions such as male and female, slave and free, Jew and Greek. And he believes that when Philemon comes to full practical knowledge of this this unity that the church has, that uh, the Spirit will work powerfully in him. And then Paul, if you run back through, you see he puts himself uh, as an equal with both of these men. He is personally unified with Onesimus. Um, He is the beloved fellow worker from verse 1. Or Philemon is the beloved fellow worker from verse 1. And he is the one whose faith, love, and ministry have brought Paul great joy while in prison. Verses 5, 6, and 7. So Paul says, and you're my equal. And then he jumps into Onesimus, who is Paul's child, begotten in prison, verse 10. He's Paul's very own heart, verse 12. And he is a beloved brother, verse 16. Paul is saying that the unity that we have in the church should just get rid of all of these barriers, all of these boundaries. Thus, um, when Philemon sees Onesimus again, Onesimus and or Philemon will be meeting Paul himself, is the gist of this letter. And he must receive the slave as if he were the apostle in person. That's Paul's request. Whatever relationship you would have with me based on the fact that I'm an apostle, based on the fact that I am um, someone deeply important to you, treat your runaway slave as such. He insists that his debts be charged to Paul's accounts. This, is, this, this whole letter is um, the ministry of reconciliation played out. It's fascinating how he appeals to the owner shame and then undermines it. <laughs> he appeals to it and he undermines it at the same time. Yeah. You know, if you look at that passage in Galatians that you, that you just quoted, every single one of those, there is an up position and a down position. Mm-hmm. He says it doesn't count either doesn't. This is, the, this is the, the ministry of reconciliation being played out, which takes me to our, our very last text that I want to read, 2 Corinthians 5. 
which could be a summary of um, the letter to Philemon. Starting in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Just assume this is addressed to Philemon. From now on, Philemon, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, even your slave, be he is a new creation. Those, those five words are, um, can justify any request Paul makes in the letter to Philemon. He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And again, it's fun to kind of flip this and read it as if he's reading it directly to Philemon. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled you to himself and gave you the ministry of reconciliation, Philemon. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, Philemon. Here's your runaway slave, by the way. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for the Messiah, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange right there, that last verse which makes a lot of sense why Paul will write a letter to a slaveholder and say, whatever he owes you, charge it to me. I'll make that exchange on his behalf. So, uh, what do we learn from Philemon? Um, we don't learn about emancipation as much as we might want to, although I think he makes that request. Um, what Paul is teaching in this letter is that if a man or woman are part of the new creation, their social status is irrelevant. You will treat them as a brother and as a sister. And he says, so here's your slave. Do whatever you want. Turns the screws to him and says, do whatever you want. But there is no distinction between you. Um, so there, there are... A million ways. I don't know. Are you wanting to do anything after this? Okay, so uh, I'll, I'll be done in two seconds. There are a million ways that we could apply this. But, um, you know, one of the most obvious ones right now is in the political arena where we love to vilify people. Um, and I would just say, you know, I've, I, I am a part of the debates. So I'm not just a passive observer. But I do see a lot of... Um, speak between brothers and sisters that is just caustic and filled with um, a nastiness that has no part to play in the, uh, in, in the brotherhood, in, in the, the, the body of Christ. Um, and then I think that we all know this, but it can at times be difficult to um, act in light of it. But there is just, um, there is no place in the body to treat anyone of a different status or race or socioeconomic level, whatever, as if they're any different than you. Um, it's obviously up for debate, but a lot of the um, 
kind of racial tension that's going on right now is probably, if you were to dig really deep, less about race and more about um, social status, more about economics. Um, black people don't scare people. Poor people scare people. And that's really what you see playing out. And I would just say, what happens if we start to treat everyone as if they have, A, the image of God? And then when they're a part of the brotherhood, what happens if we start to treat them as if they are new creations as well? So this letter is less about slavery than we want it to be, but it would certainly speak to slavery if that were an issue today. Um, But it is mostly about the ministry of reconciliation and how not only have we all been reconciled to Christ, it's now on our plate to carry on that ministry ourselves. So that said, I will turn it over to Scott. Before you get a time, a chance to reflect on uh, on this letter, we're trying to record this this one instead of on Wednesday, so that's why the microphone. Um, I want to point out a couple things. Just in his three requests, I want you to notice something. Um, n- notice how the gospel transforms in this first one. First of all, Paul, who was Saul. The gospel's done a number on him to be able to get to the point where he's, he's requesting this. Paul, Paul knows what it, when Paul comes to Christ, he knows what it means to be in debt, to recognize, holy cow, I've ravaged the church. That's, that's Acts 8, that's actually what it says. Paul ravages the church. And so Paul comes to Christ and he recognizes, man, I have, I have done so much. I'm the worst of all sinners and so Paul's been transformed by the gospel. Paul's able to now um, recognize someone else being transformed by the gospel, someone who used to be called useless, and now, um, and now perhaps because of the gospel, Onesimus now becomes useful. Paul recognizes that, and Paul refers to him as that. Paul in Colossians refers to him as a faithful brother and a beloved brother. Um, so, and, then, and, then, and then Philemon. To, to ask him to do this, to, to ask him to, you know, to reconcile with, with his former slave and for him to be willing to do it. That, that would have been not normal in society. And, and so recognize the transformation, that the gospel transforms is, is kind of the point. The gospel reconciles. Um, and, and like Brian said, that, that really seems to be the heart of this letter, that he's seeking reconciliation. Paul is appealing. He's using all of his rhetoric, all of his apostolic authority, everything he can to appeal to reconciliation. It's how big of a deal it is to Paul, and I think it shows how big of a deal it is um, to God. And then the gospel brings freedom. And, and I think, um, you know, so I, I, there's, that, that can be, there's implications to that in a lot of different ways. Um, not to mention literal freedom, but the wiping out of debts, the recognition that you are free in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come, um, and that that's a truth, and that's not, that's not something that's dependent on whether or not you um, feel free in Christ or whether or not you happen to be doing good this month. Um, like that freedom is a truth, it's not a feeling, and so there's a recognition that Okay, as a, I am free in Christ, though I'm no longer under the law, I'm no longer condemned, but in, in Him I am free. And so I can live and act free. I can make decisions based on that truth and not on how I feel. 
So I'd love for you to spend some time just reflecting on on how the gospel, the gospel implications, specifically in this, in this story, but also how it kind of interacts with you. So what, what is God drawing your attention to? What is God wanting you to reflect on? How is he wanting you to respond to this? Um, so take a few minutes, and then, uh, and then I will close in prayer and we'll be done. It may be noisy out there, so I apologize. But it's either that or burn up. It's one or the other. hear um, and just hear how the gospel just rings loud and clear through this, through this letter, how it is a beautiful picture for us to see. I pray that, God, it doesn't stop there for us. I pray that, um, that we would take some time uh, this afternoon to, to sit and reflect on what you are doing in us and what you are calling us to. I pray that, um, that we would be willing to turn from, repent, to change our mind about any, anything or any direction we're heading um, for your sake and for what you want to do in and through us. And So God, we, we, we offer ourselves to you um, and, and because you deserve our very life. And so God, take it and when we give it to you, I pray that we would surrender to you more and more and trust you with the outcome. And pray all this in Jesus' name, the Messiah. Amen. Amen. There you go.